Welcome to the SBCA podcast, Component Connection. Hello, my name is TJ Yerke, and today I'll be your host for this SBCA podcast, looking at human resources within a component manufacturing facility and how often these responsibilities are delegated to a company leader or multiple employees who are already tasked with many other responsibilities within the organization. My guest is Jason Ward, the Vice President of Human Resources for California Trust Frame, where he is responsible for leading CTF's overall human resources strategy. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Before we jump in, is there anything you'd like to say at the front end? Yeah, I'd like you to know this is not legal advice. Everything I tell you are my own musings and my thoughts and opinions, and I am not a lawyer. So if you hear something that doesn't sound right or, you know, don't take it as gospel, check it out. Have your legal counsel verify some of the stuff that I'm saying. HR and especially laws and regulations, they vary from state to state. It's very confusing. Oftentimes it's a matter of how one interprets the law that makes you, you know, on the good or bad side of it. Thank you, Jason. How would you explain HR to our listeners? Well, I kind of simplify it and think at this point, Everyone agrees that people are a company's best, most valuable asset. And HR or HRM, human resource management, is getting the most out of those people, you know, as ethically and legally as possible. But, you know, leveraging that resource to get the best competitive advantage possible. So it's all about getting the most out of people. And here's a pretty cool quote um, from a business perspective. HR is more important than ever. People are the only sustainable source of a competitive advantage. Because when you think about that, a competitive advantage being one of those things that really gets your business better than the next person. It's what makes you guys the best. There's variables, you know, it can, it can be a price or it can be, you know, your access to labor or uh, raw materials. But the one constant in our businesses is the people. And if you hire the best people, that's the only consistent way you can get that competitive advantage. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about different styles of management. What is your management style and what do you recommend? This is a great question. So there's a couple styles, you know, simplistic of of HR. You've got the hard style and the soft style. Hard is really, you know, you're treating your employees as a resource, like, you know, a piece of machinery or a saw or a building. It's, it's very uh, strong and structured and, you know, what resources do we need? How do we get them and how much will they cost? That's how you think of people in those terms. And then you've got the soft style, which is the, the need to develop a high commitment, high trust organization. You know, they treat employees as the most important resource and the source of the competitive advantage. The, the focus there is to concentrate on the needs of the, the employee, their rewards, their motivation, etc. People of that uh, school of thought tend to think that, Well, now, if I take care of my people, they're going to take care of the business. And I lean more towards the soft side than the hard side. But I think, especially in the component industry, you definitely need a blend. So, which is better? It's really a matter of opinion. But if you run that hardcore, you know, hard style of human resource management, you know, you're likely going to have higher absenteeism, staff turnover, less successful recruitment. You're not really attracting and retaining people. You're using them until they feel like they've been used up and then you cycle them out and you get new people just like tires on a truck you know you use it until they run bare and then you replace them with the soft style all of that stuff that you know you've heard about recently about you know doing more for the employee and providing benefits so that the employees take care of you that's all well and good too but that stuff costs a lot of money 
you got to run that balance because you can treat your employees so well that you go out of business by spending so much on stuff in that soft style. So I recommend absolutely combining the two. That's great. What's your view towards onboarding and how do you see this as a tool for a higher retention rate within a component manufacturing plant? It's a great question, TJ. You know, talking about retention and what we do to keep people, that's the employment life cycle. If you look back in the 1990s, you had a four-step process, essentially. You had recruitment, onboarding, performance management, and termination. And you're lucky if you had performance management. That's kind of a newer thing, right? Present day, you've got essentially double the steps, and it starts with attraction. It's not enough just to go out there and say, hey, we want you. If you're doing it right, you're doing things that make people want to go to you. Google is a great uh, representation of this. People want to go and work for Google for whatever reason, whether it's the free food or the nap pods or the flex schedule. People want to go and work there. They're doing, you know, Google, by, by making that culture, by having that softer, blended HR approach, they're making people want to go to them and work. And ideally, that's what you want because then you're saving money on recruitment. You're doing half the work. You know, you're doing it up front so that pays off dividends in the end. Then you go into recruitment trying to get those people that may not know or may not, you know, want to work in that area, but you think they're a good fit. Onboarding, that's huge, right? That's kind of a newer thing. Getting people within their first few weeks ready to work and be productive. The sooner you can get that done, the more you're going to get out of that person. Enablement, giving that employee who now has been onboarded the tools to succeed. And then as they're going through that life cycle, you see that, well, they're, they're doing well, but I think we can do more. This person shows potential. Let's have a development program around that. Let's take this person who's a really good, uh, maybe a, a Sawyer, make them a senior Sawyer or a saw line lead or something to that effect, because not only are they good with the saws, but I've seen how they interact with people and he seems to get results. Let's see if we can do more there or her for that matter. Retention, eventually, you know, if, if you're doing it right, you're paying and treating your people or you're paying your people and giving them the knowledge to where they want to uh, stay if they can, but absolutely can go somewhere else. But you try to treat them well enough to keep them, right? I think Richard Branson had a quote or something to that effect where uh, I think it's you, you treat your people or you, you develop them enough to where they can work anywhere, but you treat them well enough and you pay them well enough to keep them. And that's the idea, right? We want to get the best employees possible. We do that by developing them, creating them, cultivating them, and hopefully treating them right so that they stay. But not everyone's going to stay. Some people are going to retire. Eventually, they're going to leave. How they leave and the feedback they provide can be just as important as, as bringing them on. And then it goes back to attraction when you have to try to get people to come to you. Again, you want them to come to you on their own. So there's so much more to it than what it used to be. So we talked about attraction and retention. You know, how do we get the best possible candidates, right? That's what we want. Some things I highly recommend and ask yourself, do you have a written defined process for hiring? That ensures accountability and consistency. Consistency is key to getting what you want. Do you have job descriptions for every position? If you don't, I highly recommend it. Not only does it remove the ambiguity that, uh, for the manager and the employee for what they're supposed to be doing, it's also a tool that you can have them sign and say, hey, you agree that these are your job duties. So in the event that they go off course for whatever reason, you can come back to that document. You conduct background checks, physical screenings, toxicology tests. You know, do you really 
you know, put effort into making sure you get the best person. Not only do all these things help you, you know, verify that the person is who they say they are, it actually can give you a, a break on your insurance if you're doing this. You can actually save money by spending a little money uh, investing in the, the background aspect of your employee. Are you doing phone interviews, in-person, panel interviews? I am a big fan of a panel interview, especially for a higher level position where you'll have four or five stakeholders in that position sit down and then bring somebody into the room and interview them, right? It's a little more stressful. It's a little bit more uncomfortable, but especially for those high level, uh, higher level positions, if they can't handle the stress of a panel interview, that should tell you something. So it takes it up a level. And if somebody's really comfortable in a panel interview, that's great insight as well. Excellent information. So when it comes to employee retention, what are some strategies that you have found beneficial? Uh, I think the biggest thing here regarding the culture and hiring is do you have a mission and vision for your company? If you don't, you should. Because that sets the direction of who you are and who you want to be, what direction you're going. And the biggest thing, in my opinion, when you're hiring is you hire for fit. You can teach people how to, to build a trust or to drive a truck. The skills required in our industry can be taught, taught to almost anybody. But you can't really teach somebody how to fit with your culture. And it's not going to work. You know, square peg, round hole type thing. If you're not hiring for fit for your culture, for your direction, an alignment of where you guys are, and where you want to be, the best person in the world that can have all the skills, it's not going to be successful. I know a lot of this is cliche, but it's very, very, very important. I can tell you that personally speaking at, at the company where I work now, four and a half years ago, we were at 120 plus percent turnover. Now we're at 19.8. It gets results, I promise you. Awesome. That's great. What tips and recommendations do you have about posting jobs and asking candidates questions? Can you provide some examples? And also, can you talk a little bit about the compliance aspects of this? So now you're going to post something online, right? Let's post a job saying we, we need we need a certain position. You got to be careful, especially in HR. It's regulatory. Most people think of HR as, you know, soft skills and dealing with employee complaints. That's, that's part of it. But a lot of it is regulatory, right? Complying with laws. The biggest one that you need to be aware of is a, uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that's the regulation that says you can't discriminate based on all these other things, right? So what about recent college graduate, female administrative assistant for the HR department at the world's greatest trust company? Must type 60 words per minute, maintain a schedule, and be bilingual in Spanish. Must weigh less than 120 pounds and be a non-smoker. All right, so first thing I'm going to point out, recent college grad. Don't put that in there, right? That's likely age discrimination. Uh, must be female. Well, that's sex discrimination, right? And then language, you know, must be bilingual in Spanish. That's actually allowable if you have a, a general or a, a business necessity, right? And typically what that means, that's uh, something needed for an employer to operate safely or efficiently. So if your business has a large clientele that speaks primarily Spanish, requiring workers who interact with customers to speak Spanish, that would be a business necessity. But if you, you know, don't have to interact with customers or other employers who speak that foreign language, then you're discriminating, and then you can't do that. So it's a fine line, and that's what I said when it often comes down to one's interpretation, right? What about uh, must be, weigh less than 120 pounds and be a non-smoker? 
those are technically allowed, but I'd make the case you shouldn't bring up the weight thing because then you're treading into the, the you know, maybe somebody has a, a weight medical problem or a disability. So, I mean, you can do that and that's been proven in, in multiple lawsuits, but I don't recommend it. And really, unless the job required, you know, a weight aspect to it, don't do it. You're, ju you're just asking for trouble. And of course, nobody has the right to smoke on company property. You can absolutely say non-smoker. And you don't really have a medical uh, thing unless it refers to possibly medical marijuana or something to that effect. And that's where the waters get muddied again. So the only place where I've seen, you know, must be a non-smoker would be in pharmaceutical manufacturing where you can't have the smoke residue on your, your clothes and stuff like that. But otherwise, I'd leave that off there as well. So even the things you're allowed to do, just... Keep it to the facts. Keep it to what you really need, because it's not just a, you know, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Right. You also have the Age Discrimination Employment Act. You've got Americans with Disabilities Amendment Act and the ADA without the amendment. You also have the Immigration Reform and Control Act. There's other state and local laws. They vary. There's 50 states. There's probably 50 different versions of a law out there for some of this stuff. You also have the National Labor Relations Act dealing with unions, the Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, and of course, bankruptcy acts, child support enforcement amendments, etc. All of those acts and laws and rules govern in some way what you post for a job board somewhere. You know, if you're saying, I need this person. So keep that stuff in mind. You don't have to be an HR expert, but if you just keep it to exactly what you need and you leave out all this other stuff, you'll be fine. So there's other things I suggest you don't ask. So instead of saying, when did you graduate, right? Because then you're possibly discriminating based on age because most college graduates are younger. Uh, they're typically not over 40. You could get in trouble. So instead of saying that, say, can you supply transcripts of your education? From a disability, like, hey, can you do the job? Or are you hurt? Have you ever been hurt at work before? Do you have a disability? Be very specific. Say, can you do the duties listed in the job description with or without accommodation? Because by law, if you didn't know, you have to provide reasonable accommodation. And reasonable is a very fluid word from a law perspective. Um, and you, more than saying that you can't, if you can't provide reasonable accommodation, you have to prove that you can't. And it, it's a lengthy process. So just be aware that you do have to provide reasonable accommodation. And say, you know, what religion are you or trying to find out what church somebody may go to? Just ask, what professional associations are you a member of? Again, are you married? Do you have children? Don't ask that stuff. Say, but you can get the information you need by asking, are you able to travel frequently? You know, can you work overtime with, with no notice? You know, when we check background check or references, are there other names we should look under? Stuff like that will get you the information that you feel like you need. And of course, instead of, are you a U.S. citizen? This one uh, should be standard on all applications. Is if you're hired, are you able to provide documentation to prove that you're eligible to work in the U.S.? That's something you just have to do. But really, these questions, for the most part, except for are you able to, you know, provide documentation, to me, aren't really relevant. If you t ask these questions, I promise you, you're going to really find out about the person and how they interact, how they uh, face challenges. I mean, when they have they succeeded? Have they failed? You're going to get really good stuff. And you're not asking if they're married or about their personal life, because does that really matter at the end of the day? Not so much, right? You want to know if they can do the job that, for which you have an opening. But compliance is key. Another organization that I didn't talk about, the Equal Opportunity Commission, 
just so you know, if you're not compliant with this stuff, they can come after you. And employee complaints are at a record high. So and in 2018, there's 250 lawsuits that collected over 400 million in damages. I think that's on average 1.6 million per lawsuit. Um, if you can absorb that type of hit, by all means, do what you want to do. But I think it's better to be in compliance as best as possible, you know, so to avoid this type of stuff. And it's tough. The Department of Labor estimates 80% of companies are out of compliance. It's like that by design, in my opinion. If it's that hard for people to comply, there's probably something wrong with the law. But the law is what it is, and we have to be compliant with it. I couldn't agree more. So you've hired an employee successfully, a great candidate coming into the manufacturing plant. Now what? What are the next steps, and, and what should uh, component manufacturers be doing to help keep them at the plant long term? Um, I recommend 90-day plan. Take it, modify it, use it however you want for those first 90 days. Because if you want to eliminate you know, or reduce turnover, this is a good way to do it, in my opinion. You know, On your first day, tell the receptionist, arrange a tour. You know, you're going to walk that person around. Take that new employee to lunch. That's very key. That really makes them feel welcome on the first day. Uh, it's something I highly recommend for all new hires. If you have that ability to do so, take them to lunch. That'll make them feel like part of the team from day one. And assign a new hire buddy. A new hire buddy is somebody that is on a peer level with that new hire that can show them the ropes and tell them what's up in the company. Talk about the culture. Tell them how you do things. Show them where the bathroom is. Stuff like that. It's somebody that's going to be assigned to them for the first 90 days to make them feel comfortable and at home. And like I said, it's a peer level uh, relationship, right? And obviously you want to pick somebody that would be good at that. Um, don't take the guy who's known as a troublemaker or who's disgruntled and say, you're a new hire, buddy. But take one of those outstanding rock stars at your company that really gets what you're trying to do and say, hey, can you help get this person up to speed and on board? If you do it within the same department, that's cool. But you also have a benefit of doing it from without or outside the department so they get a different perspective of things as well during that second week you know make a timetable for setting and reaching goals uh, set up those one-on-one -on -one meetings we'll talk about those later introduce a newcomer to other departments host an informal to get together to meet the entire team if you guys are spread out that's a good way to do that after about two weeks check on the progress encourage two-way communication and if see if there's any concerns try and re uh, resolve them early at about 30 days, you want to start getting them involved in short and long-term projects. You want to give them some quick victories to build confidence. Because at 30 days, people are still kind of feeling unsure. They're trying to figure out your company. If you can give them a few quick projects or tasks that they can knock out and feel good about, that'll build their confidence. Then they'll start wanting more, and you can give them those longer-term things. But don't overwhelm them yet at this stage, right? At about 45 days is where we have our turnover. 20% usually occurs at that point. It's really a great time to assess their understanding of their role and gauge their happiness. And then at 90 days, if you're not doing it, I highly recommend you do a 90-day introductory period review. It's the best time to conduct that initial performance review, give them feedback, ask for help, um, how you can help them and how they can help you and get their ideas for improvements. Hey, you've been here for 90 days. You're a fresh set of eyes. What would you do differently? And then discuss if they don't like it there, why they might, may want to leave. Now, some people just you know, aren't cut out for it. That's okay. But if you can talk to them along the way and help them, the transition period will be a lot easier. Great points, Jason. So what tips do you have for engaging and developing your employees? And also, what suggestions do you have for performance reviews? 
It's, it's a great question, TJ. So you've hired the person. Now you got to start talking about development, right? And one of the best ways to do that in my mind is those one-on-one -on -one meetings. This has helped me out perhaps more than anything else I've ever done as a manager is have a one-on-one -on -one or a skip level meeting. Here's a statistic that one in two employees have left the job because of a manager. And I would say that that other employee who said he didn't is lying. So people, I mean, it's cliche, right? People don't quit jobs, they quit managers. The way you can get around that is by knowing your people. And a great way to know your people is have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them. Now, it's a scheduled weekly, bi-weekly, maybe it's monthly. But you have a scheduled meeting of some sort of at least a half an hour. It doesn't have to be much more than that. But you set aside a half an hour for this employee. And say, hey, this is your time. What's on your mind? How can I help? If you schedule it, you do it with everyone you manage so everyone's treated the same. It becomes personalized when you make sure they know it's their time. Ask questions. Take notes. Be seen taking notes and asking questions. You know, don't blow them off. Don't look at your watch. That's a great time to build that bond with that employee to find out what makes them tick. Now, because everybody works for a different reason. It's not just about the money. You want to find out why your people do what they do. And in that process, you may be able to find that, hey, this person has a great strength over here. And if I combine them with this person over here who has that weakness, but they're really strong in another area, I'm going to get a really cool result. And you'll find that only by interacting with your employees and finding out more about them. Employees whose managers hold regular meetings with them are almost three times as likely to be engaged as employees whose managers do not. That's huge. Engagement is key. That's how you get people uh, passionate about what they're doing. One-on-ones are extremely important. And if you're a higher level manager, an ops manager, GM, VP, etc., you should be having those skip level meetings. It's essentially the same thing, but it's skipping a level. So if you have a vice president of operations and then underneath that vice president of operations, you have an operations manager. And then underneath that operations manager, you have a plant level manager. A skip level meeting would be where that plant manager is skipping his uh, ops manager and going right to the VP for a one on one type thing. And you can do this at all different levels, but essentially what you're doing, you're just skipping a level. And what that does is it shows the employees that the higher ups are also interested in who they are and what they're doing. You know, and those take time depending on the size of your organization. But I'm telling you, the time you invest into your employees and these one on ones and skip level meetings pays dividends. It is huge. And you don't lose anything. You might lose a half an hour or even if you're losing hours of production. When they come out of that meeting feeling valued, feeling like they're worth something, they're going to increase their efficiency. They're going to be better at what they do. And then, you know, you also find out if somebody's not working out in those meetings as well. And you'll have a, a plan of action to go from there. But again, I can't stress impo how important these have been, and at least my career, is having skip-level meetings and one-on-ones with my employees. They're huge. They also give you information to do those performance reviews, which seem like such a pain in the butt. They come up far too often. It seems like they spring up on you last minute. Oh, I have to do reviews again. Didn't I just do this? Well, probably. But as a manager and as an HR professional, or even if you're not an HR professional, but you know you care about people, you have to realize, like I said, people work for more than just money. I'm not going to go into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but they need that feedback. They crave that feedback. While it may seem like a big pain in the butt for most managers to do performance reviews, that is a time period when if it's done right, those when employees get excited about their job. They're getting feedback. They know that hey, I've kicked butt this year. I want to hear about it. Maybe I'll get a raise out of it. Maybe not. 
But then as a manager, if you have somebody who's not performing, that gives you an opportunity to say, hey, these are the expectations. Uh, you're falling a little short here. Let's see if we can tweak and adjust some stuff and then you know, move forward to the next review. You know, it's, it's also a way for you checking to get your money's worth. You invested so much money into this person because they're supposed to be a rock star. Come performance review time, you look at all that ad and you realize, oh, they're not doing so hot. You can make some adjustments. Nine out of 10 employees don't feel appreciated or recognized at work according to a, a recent survey. And over a third of employees say they would quit their job if they didn't feel their efforts are recognized or appreciated. I'm telling you, it's not just about money. People want that thank you. They want to feel appreciated. They want pride in what they do. They want to be recognized for doing a job well done. How do you set up a review system? It doesn't have to be complicated. You can do it on one sheet of paper or you can spend a ton of money and go uh, invest in ADP and have their review system. But on just a sheet of paper, you can give you know, a few questions around, you know, teamwork or, uh, you know, whatever. Things that are important to you, how you grade your employees, and do a, a brief five-point scale, right? With one being the lowest, five being the best. And you can do 3.3, 3.4, and give you more granularity so you can get better feedback to the employee. And here's an example, right? Uh, typically, your 70% your of your employees will fall between below average and above average, um, I, I find that most people meet expectations, right? And meeting expectations is not a bad thing. That's exactly what we would expect as employers. Nothing's gone wrong. You're meeting expectations in every area, and in some areas you're exceeding, right? But in four, if you get somebody starts getting a four, they're, they're consistently exceeding expectations almost all the time. It's a very simple rating structure. You can set this up in about a half an hour. You pick 10 questions about teamwork or, or core values or, you know, whatever. You give them a scale of one to five. You do the average. And then the scale actually helps you decide, um, do they deserve an increase? At what point level, you know, would I typically have? It's just a useful tool. It gives you data to quantify some of those things that feel, you know, qualitative in nature. And it helps you with reviews and performance. And it's something you can show the employee as well. You lay out your expectations. You show them what they get as a grade. And you show them why. You communicate it during your review system. And there's no ambiguity. So it's, it's a great useful tool. If you're not doing performance reviews, I recommend that you do. Uh, I know there's been some pushback in uh, the Google world against doing performance reviews. But I think people really want that feedback. And if there's a better way to do it, I'm sure there is. But this works for us. Uh, I, I know it'll work for you if it's implemented properly. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. When it comes to bad reviews, can you tell us the steps that you take and what recommendations do you have? Well, then we beat them until morale improves, right? <laughs> that, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you don't want to just dole out punishment and, and expect things to get better. It's got to be an, an act of communication. And I highly recommend to protect yourself during this process that you do a, a tiered discipline policy. You don't jump straight to, well, you are insubordinate. I'm going to suspend you or fire you. Uh, oftentimes that may feel good to do, but I'm telling you, it's not. Go through the process, document everything. Use a tiered system where, um, you know, you have multiple steps along the way. And what that does, it allows you to intervene and correct behavior at the first sign of something going wrong. It's another communication tool. If it's done right, it improves morale because those workers who are doing well see that the, the slacker, for lack of a better term, is being spoken to 
and possibly getting some sort of documentation because they're slacking off and putting more work on other people. So that makes the good workers feel good about the situation and say, hey, this company really is looking out for me. It's not really intended to be a punishment, though. It's it's more like a covenant or a reminder that, hey, you know, we hired you. You agreed to do this. These are the expectations. You're falling short here, even though we've talked to you. So we're going to document it, but let's not have it happen again. Is there any confusion on what's expected? Is there anything we can do to help? And the idea is hopefully you don't have to give too many of those before the, the employee writes themselves and everything goes back to the way it was, or maybe they even get better, you know, but sometimes it doesn't. All right. Thank you, Jason. Um, how, how do you discipline employees? You know, if you have to use discipline, here are the three rules of the rod, right? Document everything. If you say you do something, you have to prove it. And the only way to prove it is to document it. You can tell the judge or somebody at an unemployment hearing that, oh, yeah, this is our policy. And he knew better than not to do that. And then they're going to say, how do they know better? Well, I talked to him. Well, can you prove it? Because he's saying you didn't talk to him. Well, no, because I don't have it in writing. I didn't get a roster saying uh, we talked on this day or there was no written warnings or a verbal or anything of that sort. There's nothing documented. If you don't document it, you don't do it, even if you are. So please document everything. Rule number two, don't put anything in writing that you don't want a judge to see. So, I mean, do everything above board, but know that, you know, if you're writing on, a, you know, giving somebody a write-up or something of that nature, if they sue you and go to court, those records can be subpoenaed and you have to deliver them. And if you put something silly on there, you don't want that. So don't do something that could be used against you. Stick to the facts, stick to the truth, right? Don't put EE or employee has a bad attitude. You know, talk about what happened. Say, this employee raised his voice and became argumentative when asked about the status of a project. There's a difference between those two statements. One is factual. One is based on opinion. Absolutely maintain a cumulative record of ongoing performance. Make sure employees know the consequences of failure to improve. Again, document the warnings and assessments, document attendance and tardiness, and definitely document your expectations. Far too often, uh, it comes to be, uh, you see something, well, maybe it's just this one time, I'm not going to say anything, I don't want to come off as a hard ass. Then it happens again, then it happens again. Then it happens to the point to where you're like, I'm really sick of this, this guy needs to go. And what happens? You go to fire that person, you don't have documentation, and it's a surprise to the employee. And now because it's a surprise... They're angry and they're going to go file a lawsuit. This is my rule. Don't let it be a surprise. If you have to write somebody up or terminate them, think of it as a failure on yourself, in my opinion. Because that means you're not communicating, you're not managing effectively. It should never be a surprise when somebody's getting terminated or written up. Your expectations absolutely need to be communicated ahead of time. That way the employee knows what they're doing. It's only fair. That's how you set them up for success. That's how you're onboarding them. That's how you're developing them, communicating those expectations. When do you do that? Back in those one-on-ones, right? So please, don't let it be a surprise if an employee gets fired. And, you know, I'm not talking like an unexpected layoff or whatnot, but if, you're, if it's because of disciplinary reasons, if they're getting fired or terminated, you did something wrong as a manager or I've done something wrong. Here's a quick example of how it would work, right? Um, this is the one that we use at my company, verbal coaching. We actually do verbal writings. So if we have to give somebody a verbal warning, we'll talk about it. We'll fill it out on a piece of paper. We won't have them sign it, but we'll just put it in the folder. 
Now, I realize uh, having them sign it or not, uh, there can be some debate. You can say, well, how do you know you gave it to the employee because he didn't sign it? Uh, true, but it's still just a verbal. And then you have your first, second, third written warnings, and then finally termination if there's transgressions after that. We also utilize reduction in pay and suspension, but typically I don't recommend a suspension because then you're dealing with lost wages. And if you're not going to suspend them to fire them, what you're doing is making somebody sit at home and be angry and watch daytime TV where they're saying, you know, have you been slighted by your employer? Call us now, blah, blah, blah. Suspensions I typically recommend using as an investigative tool where you're suspending pending termination. You're looking into the facts. You already know that you're likely going to have to terminate this person based on a record. Um, so you'll suspend them pending the investigation. You get all your documents and paperwork together. Then you bring them back in and do the termination. Reduction in pay, perfectly legal if it's for a performance aspect, just like it is giving somebody a bonus if they're doing well. But you can't reduce their pay below minimum wage, whatever that is in your area. This policy gives people a lot of chances. We rarely get to the final written warnings because we over communicate. Oftentimes by somebody's gotten to their second or even third written warning, they're already looking for another job because the writing is on the wall. They're not surprised. They've not adapted to what they're supposed to do. And uh, that's also helped our turnover immensely. That's great. So as far as terminations go, how do you handle them? And can you give us any examples? So you get to the point to where it's just not working out. Don't drag it out. Make it quick. Get to the point. Don't argue. Here's a perfect script. I don't know if it's perfect, but it's a good script. Hello, so-and-so. Sit down. I have some bad news. As you know, we've talked several times in the past about your issues. Uh, at this point, we've decided that a change must be made and effective immediately. Your employment has been terminated. It's very important to make sure you say effective immediately. Because by doing that, you're saying in past tense or in present and past, that it's already happened, the decision has already been made, it's done. There's nothing to talk about moving forward. I recommend offering them a chance to resign. It's a great way for them to save face so they can go to their next job and say, well, that place just wasn't right for me. I didn't like the management or whatever they're going to say. But eventually they're going to say, well, I quit that place. I wasn't fired. It always looks better to say you left a job than that you were fired. You know, So they can save face. And then from a legal aspect, it's really hard to sue an employer when you have a letter saying or something saying that I resigned because if it was really that bad, why would you quit? So it's offers something valuable for both parties. You know, when people get fired, they go through those stages of shock, denial, anger, grief. You know, don't debate or defend or de defend the action. You don't have to. If they start questioning why, just repeat the script. That's what you're supposed to do. Eventually that will shut them down, you know, but when you're talking to them, don't say you understand how they feel, because even if you've been on the other end of it, at that point right there, you don't. You're on the other side of the table. You're not the one getting fired. And when you say, I understand how you feel, you're likely just going to make that person upset. You know, don't <laughs> try to justify it or say, this hurts now, but it's for the better, um, or you should have known. But do keep a box of Kleenex handy. Uh, oftentimes, people who you wouldn't expect to start to cry or, or show emotion will do such. Um, and that's just one thing you can do, but it's really about respect. That's how you avoid litigation and lawsuits. You, you do it as respectfully as possible, and hopefully everything's going to turn out fine. But avoid that misdirected compassion. I know a lot of people who feel for their employees. It could be somebody who's worked there for 20 or 30 years, but just know that it got to this point for a reason. Don't feel bad for them if you can help it, because, you know, that employee brought this on themselves. 
and there's other employees in very similar or exactly the same situation as that person, and they're continuing to perform just fine. They've stepped it up. They've risen to that level. They've met their expectations in spite of having as many personal problems. So when you start thinking, man, I feel really bad for this person, think about the way that they worked with other people. Think about the other people that are out there that still have their jobs that depended on this person. It's okay to have you know, empathy, but don't go too far into it, if that makes sense. And then at the end of the day, remember the good, right? Document everything, even the good stuff. Awards, recognition, trainings, certifications. Um, good quote, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit, says Aristotle. Absolutely. Remember that good stuff, document that as well. When it comes to performance reviews, Instead of waiting last minute to try and figure it out, keep a folder for your employees, whether it's a digital or a physical one. And every time they do something good or bad, make a note in that folder. It takes 30 seconds and it saves you hours of work come review time. Because then when it's the review time, you open up that folder and you can say, oh, on this date, this person did this. That's great. I should make note of that in my review or you know, go the other way if it happens to be bad. But keep a folder of all the good stuff and all the bad stuff they've done. So that when it comes time for review, you can open up that folder and that gives you your outline for what you're going to talk about. Excellent information. What other tips or suggestions might you have for showing appreciation to your employees? I recommend thank you certificates. Anyone can give one. It's up on our CTF intranet, so everyone has access to it. It's another way to show appreciation, and you can make it as formal or informal as you like. If you want to do a whole military formation type thing and hand out a certificate saying thank you in front of everybody, go for it. If you want it to be from one person to the next, they can do that as well. You get the template, you put their name on there, you say thank you for being awesome for whatever reason, you sign it, you date it, you put it you know, on their desk or you give it to them. It's another great way of saying thank you that doesn't cost anything. People crave that, you know, not the attention, but the thanks. They want that recognition. That goes so, so far. And it's free. It doesn't cost anything. And it's as good as money in a lot of cases. And this is just one way to do it. Tell your people thank you. Awesome. So a simple but effective strategy. I like it. So when it comes to wage and benefits, what errors have you seen? Um, two most common errors I've seen at every business, whether it was in biotech manufacturing or component manufacturing, it's rounding errors and deductions. If you're tracking your employees' time and you're doing it in 15-minute increments, if they're hourly, you're going to get in trouble at some point. The rule is from 1 to 7 minutes, you can round it down to 0. 8 to 14, you round it up to 15. If you say if you're 2 minutes late, we're taking 15 minutes from you, and you do that for employee after employee, year after year, eventually you're going to owe hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on your employee base, maybe even more, up to a million or millions. Depends on how big. But don't do it. Know the numbers, round appropriately. And then deductions from pay. We, you know, Miscellaneous deductions. Oh, I, I broke this in the course of business. Don't worry about it. We'll just take it out of your pay. You can't do that. You can do deductions for absences due to illness, disability, or personal reasons. Disciplinary suspensions or penalties. First and last weeks of employment or unpaid leave. And pretty much that's it. Stay away from miscellaneous deductions. Everything else, chalk it up to the cost of doing business. It's the best way to protect yourself. You know, yeah, you may get two or 300 back from the employee for that staple gun or, or nail gun, but when they file a lawsuit, it's going to cost you a lot more. So just chalk it up as a cost of doing business and protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Excellent information.
How often do you recommend doing performance reviews? This is a great question. Um, <clears throat> official performance reviews, I recommend, and it's a pain in the butt and it doesn't go over well uh, oftentimes, but I recommend twice a year. Because if you go a whole year without feedback, right? If you only do it at the end of the year for doing a performance evaluation, that's a long time to not have any official documentation on how well your person's doing. Now, if your company has a great culture and you guys communicate often and you're doing one-on-ones all the time, you don't need to do it you know, more than one time a year. But I recommend if you're just starting out, provide official communication twice a year. Do it in the summer and then do it at the end of the year. In the summer, so at the, I'll start at the end of the year, you know, you're, you're talking about how you did the previous year and you're setting goals moving forward for the next year. Then in six months, which is still kind of a long time, but if you're having one-on-ones and constant communication, it's not that long. Uh, you can tweak what they're doing and say, hey, for the first half of the year, you've been doing this well. Uh, keep doing what you're doing here. I'd like to see you do more here. And let's see how you do for the latter half of the year. Or maybe it's, hey, you kicked that goal in the butt. You could finish it in three months instead of the six or seven. Let's give you something else. It, you know, the more official times you have to do this, the better, but you also don't want it to be where your manager is only thinking about performance reviews and not thinking about board footage. So you have to find that balance. It depends on the level where you are with your, with your company's culture and your feedback and what kind of meetings you're having. My company, we do it twice a year. We do it in the summer and then we do it at the end of the year as well. And I find that that's a, that's a good balance. And just because I talk about performance reviews, that doesn't mean people are getting pay increases, by the way. You know, every, at my company, every increase has to come with a review, but not everybody gets a pay increase just because they're getting a review because everybody in the company gets a review every six months, essentially. Do you have any final recommendations for companies needing help with HR? I want to talk about two of my favorite references. This one costs money and I don't get anything from this organization for doing this, but if you don't have an HR person, this website can be that person for you. It's the Society for Human Resource Management. They have compliance resources, news. The biggest thing that I like about this is their member network. You pay their membership, you become part of this, and then you have this forum or, or discussion board where you can put any question you want on there, as long as it's you know not lewd or crass or something of that nature. And then there's over 300,000 people who have access to this who will probably have an answer for you, who have already gone through something exactly like what you have, or at least very similar. It's a phenomenal resource for those without an HR professional to get legitimate HR advice. And of course, the very best one out there is our SBC Industry Workforce Development website. Staff put this thing together. It is amazing. You know, these are tools that are specific to our industry from building relationships with schools, access to potential employees, training, you know, basic implant, basic training, uh, trust technician training and trust manufacturing orientation. We use those at our plant to supplement our orientation and onboarding. So half the job of, of having an HR person or bringing somebody on board is right here at your fingertips with your SBCA membership. And the best part about it is it's industry specific. It's phenomenal. If you guys haven't looked at it, go to the website, see the tools that are available, check it out. It's awesome. I can't say enough about it. That's enough of my shameless plugs. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. 
I'd like to thank our listeners for spending this time with us and hopefully gaining some insight into some new ideas and best practices when it comes to human resources. Thank you for listening to SBCA's podcast, Component Connection. We are committed to bringing you a variety of information via this podcast. Please email your feedback or suggestions for future topics to podcast at sbcindustry.com.